vulnerability, like the kind you experience in AA or one should experience in, in writing and maybe all forms of art, vulnerability sort of buys freedom. Like when you're vulnerable, when you are able to admit to what can go wrong, what has gone wrong with you in the past, the mistakes you've made, now you're free. Like if I'm writing something, I don't publish it unless I'm afraid of what people are going to think of me. I just ask myself at the end, right before I hit publish, am I really saying something new and unique here? Uh, because I don't want to say something that everyone else has said. Or am I saying something where I'm really afraid? Oh no, what, is, what are X, Y, and Z going to think of me? What are these people going to think of me? What are my friends going to think of me? What are my readers going to think of me? So I, I always have to double check myself because if you're not afraid of what you're creating, there's a chance then that, okay, everybody else has done it because they weren't afraid either. And so there's got to be some resistance somehow that you get over. And yeah, I'm just being authentic and that allows me to be as creative as I want in this area. I'm creative even about my mistakes. That's James Altucher. And this is The Ritual Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. How you guys doing? So right now, as I record this, it's Sunday afternoon, May 31st, and I'm once again coming to you with a heavy heart because I'm bearing witness to riots and protests here in Los Angeles and all across America, growing in numbers, growing in intensity, cities literally burning, and it's as if the country is descending into this dystopian chaos. So in an effort to collect my thoughts on our current state of affairs, I wrote a piece that I just shared on Instagram a few moments ago, which I think I'd like to just loosely riff on here because it's difficult to know what the right thing to say is. And I know for myself, I feel somewhat paralyzed when it comes to publicly sharing a perspective on what's going on right now because I really, really don't want to get it wrong. This is a time in which I think it's much more important for somebody like me to listen than to just pontificate for the sake of pontificating. But there's a tension because I also feel a responsibility as somebody with a platform and an audience to somehow participate in the process of provoking positive change. And the thing is, the truth that I really need to own is that I am in so many ways a beneficiary of systemic racism. I'm a white man. My life is the direct result and product of tremendous privilege. I can walk down any street without unease. I can run anywhere without any apprehension. And pretty much everywhere I go, doors swing open. And because of this, it doesn't really feel comfortable or right to weigh in on this historic moment of cataclysm. And yet, what is the point of this privilege if it isn't used to help empower the voices that too long have gone unheard? The world is in chaos right now in so many ways because we, as both individuals and as members of a collective society, have time and again fail to truly redress the toxic racial divide that is woven into the very fabric 
of this country, a nation that was birthed out of a violence not entirely dissimilar from what we are seeing today. This pot has been brought to its current dystopian boil by galling failures in leadership, countless infuriating miscarriages of justice, foundering efforts at true social reform, the rise of brash authoritarianism buttressed by an increasingly militarized police state that perpetuates violence completely unchecked. We see the weaponization of media and broken economic and political systems that aggrandize power and accelerate the rapidly growing divide between the very few haves and the countless and invisible have-nots. This moment really should come as no surprise because disenfranchisement cannot be decoupled from the anger, the confusion, the fear, and the chaos that it creates, and the silenced must be heard. Now look, I don't condone violence. My heart grows heavier and heavier with each new report from the rioting front lines, but I really think humanity is facing a choice. Are we gonna crash or are we gonna rise? Personally, I choose rise. My hope is that this burn is not for naught, that the ashes of this devastating upheaval will ultimately unite us to finally reimagine and recreate a society that values true equality and opportunity for all. So that's the post. And one aspect of what I was trying to get at is that social change begins with personal change. We can't shift systems without shifting ourselves, without an honest, uncompromising, objective appraisal of ourselves and inventory of our behaviors. So in an admittedly very clumsy effort to now segue to today's conversation, which I think it's important to point out was recorded way back in mid-February and therefore free of coronavirus or social unrest discussion, today's conversation pivots on the subject of personal change, the importance of being teachable, adapting to changing times, and committed to constant growth and self-reinvention, which I think is more important now than ever. My cipher for this exploration is my friend James Altucher, who I consider in many ways a virtuoso when it comes to reinvention. Returning for his fourth appearance on the show, James is, well, James is many things. He's a prodigious intellect. He's an abundantly talented polymath. He's a comic. He's a chess master, an entrepreneur, a prolific writer. I think he's written over 20 books, including the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Choose Yourself, which is my favorite. He's a fellow podcaster and a fairly unconventional thinker with an idiosyncratic lens on pretty much everything from creativity to finances. James and his writing have appeared in major media outlets, including the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the New York Observer, TechCrunch, and the Financial Times. His blog, jamesaltucher.com, has attracted more than 20 million readers since its launch in 2010. And his podcast, The James Altucher Show, regularly appears in the top 100 podcasts on iTunes. What's most compelling to me about James is this drive that he has to constantly reinvent himself. So today, we're gonna explore the importance of that trait 
and the ability and the habits that allow one to adapt and thrive in rapidly changing times. Something that I think is more critical now than ever. But first. Hey, everybody. Like me, Inside Tracker wants to help you start the new year right. So they're thrilled to help support the Living Proof Challenge, the no cost, science based habit building program designed by my well being wizard brother, Simon Hill, to specifically up level the most important biomarkers that drive health span, that drive disease prevention, physical fitness, and mental well being, courtesy of a doable, evidence based 12 week program elaborated upon in length in my conversation with Simon that dropped January 1. That's RRP804. If you listen to that episode, then you know the program entails comprehensive blood testing at both the commencement and conclusion of the challenge. And nobody handles blood testing better than Inside Tracker, who are graciously encouraging everyone to join the no cost challenge by offering a 25% off discount on Inside Tracker tests. To unlock the discount and learn more about this challenge, visit theproof.com slash livingproof. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made. And that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fair trade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic fair trade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive, and the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. Okay, James, thinking differently. Learning how to fluidly adapt to change and reinvention. These are the things that we're going to talk about today. Uh, This conversation was recorded back in February It's the very last in what used to be a pretty large stash of episodes banked before we went into quarantine. However, I think you're going to find that much of what is discussed today is highly applicable and can be deployed to help you navigate our current circumstances, uh, this moment in which we are all being required to adapt and to varying degrees reinvent ourselves. Uh, This is about how to make decisions, how to find and create opportunity in uncertainty, how to cultivate creativity, and also it's about how to create financial stability. 
James is one of my very favorite people. He's a natural and gifted conversationalist. His ideas are easily deciphered and they're packed with the perfect amount of humor and data-backed insight. So here we go. This is me and James Altucher. It's nice to have interesting people come to your house. And I think that they, um, my theory is that they infuse this place with their energy. And there's a there's a certain like kind of permanence to that, that I feel like with every guest that comes, like this place becomes better. You I like I that. I, uh, and also I think just having people in your home, it makes them relax a little bit. I think it makes them relax. Know? And I think it makes them see, view you as, it makes it easier for this to be a conversation because I'm in your right. home. I'm not just sitting back waiting for you to interview me like a reporter. Exactly. This is your home. How long have you lived here? Since we built the house, 2003. So 2003, uh, so you were still doing the lawyering. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I lawyered, I mean, I was slowly kind of weaning myself off of the, the law up until 2012. Um, the last couple of years, I wasn't doing very much of it, but yeah, I was, I was, a, I was a lawyer here for, the first several years. And you'd commute all the way into LA? No, I mean, at that point, I had opted out of the big corporate law firm life. And then I had a variety of different iterations. Like I was a, I was a solo practitioner and then I had a couple partners for a while. And then I had a different partner. I had an office in Beverly Hills for a while. I had an office in Santa Monica. And then I just worked out of the house on and off as well. So, um, but also, you know, in those iterations, like I didn't really have a boss, so I had more flexibility. So it wasn't like the nine to five type of commute, but there are people that live around here that 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 commute downtown every day. Like, I don't know how they do that because we live pretty far out there. How, how far away is downtown from here? We, it depends. It's all about traffic, as you know. It can be two hours or it can be 45 minutes, depending. But our eldest daughter, she's a sophomore in high school. She goes to a high school that's east of downtown now, and the commute is just too onerous. So we um, have an apartment that we rent in downtown and my wife and I split the week staying down there with her and we're homeschooling the other one. Good for you. So, I think yeah, that's yeah. the way I mean, to both go. of them were, have been homeschooled on and off. Um, and I know you have lots of ideas and thoughts about education, specifically college and all of that. I think we've talked about that before. Yeah, although I'm, I'm just curious as a side, like probably the main question you're asked about this is the socialization. Cause obviously homeschooling, she's gonna learn more from you than in some crappy high school, but in terms of friends and socialization, does she get that? Yeah, uh, I mean, that's something that comes up all the time. And that that's something I worry about the least hmm. because our house is like, it's like a functioning studio. There's just people here all the time, like all different kinds of interesting people. So in terms of like social stimulus, like that's the least of my worries. I, I, I do get concerned occasionally about, you know, basically pure academics. Oh no, I wouldn't get but worried about I know. that. You know, How much do you remember yeah, from nothing. high school? I know. It is, it, it's basically just my, the programming of my upbringing that kicks up and creates resistance around it. Like I always ask people, Okay, I've even asked this to people who like majored in college in like European history. And I say, okay, when was Charlemagne born? And this is the most, this is the guy who united Europe or whatever as the first great <laughs> king of Europe. And probably 95%, and, and by the way, we've, we've studied it. It's been in textbooks every year since like sixth grade. And if you majored in European history, you should definitely know it. 
But 95%, most, I would say almost 100% don't get it right within 500 years. Right. Like they, I, I, can, I, even, I definitely could not answer that. I don't even really remember it right now. And I've asked, <laughs> yeah. I've even written about it and I've yeah. asked it a million times, but I think it was around 754, give or take. Uh-huh. But people will say 1400, 1300, they won't know. Yeah. And, and I'm like, okay, well, what else can, have we learned in school every single year? There's nothing else. I took French for five years. I can't say anything other than bonjour and... I can't even count. I can't even count to 10. And I took it for five years, including in college. Right. What we do need to do, though, is reconfigure uh, the priorities of education around learning how to learn and learning how to make decisions and learning how to interact with people, like life skills that transcend pure memorization. I mean, you, you were looking at Shane Paris's book here on the on, sitting on the table. He was in here the other day. And his whole thing about mental models was grown, was born out of this realization that nobody had ever taught him about the methodology of making good decisions. Like it's just, that's, there's no course in business school or in college or in high school about that. And yet that's something that all of us need to do a zillion times every single day. Yeah, not, not only make decisions, but avoid the biases that are like almost biologically built into our brains to prevent us from making good decisions. Right. You know, and, and ev- from an evolutionary point of view, there was a reason for it. Like if you heard, if you were walking by a bush and you hear this rustling, you would start running because for good reason, maybe there's only a 1% chance it's a lion and a 99.999% chance it's, you know, just wind through the bushes, but you can't take the chance. So you just run. But we end up making, we, but we're staring at a screen all day now and we're getting those same instincts. And so we're making decisions based on those same, there's no lion in the in the computer, but like if a stock goes down a little bit and you're looking at the stock market or if someone sends you an email you don't like, you get that same thing. Like, I'm gonna just k- kill somebody or run. Mm-hmm. And, and you don't know that these are just biases that have been there for a million years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's certainly true and I've, been victim to that many times. We're, we all are, you can't help yeah, it. Yeah. Like something in your body or mind is reacting to something in a visceral way. And so if, if you lean into that, there usually is some creative output that you could produce. So uh, I remember one time, this is a crazy little experiment I did. I, I, I wanted to play around with what are formats to write an article. So everybody just writes and posts it on LinkedIn or their blog and they write a little, you know, 10 reasons to do this or whatever. And so I wanted to come up with, I've been playing around for 20 years, different formats of writing. So I said, I wanna do something I never did before. And Donald Trump had just tweeted, I'm gonna buy Greenland. Right. And I'm thinking to myself, that's really weird. Like I didn't even know you could buy a country. and. <laughs> So I figured, okay, let's that something about this feels weird, of course. Right. And, and then, and then the president of Denmark, or the, I don't know, the the, lead, the prime minister of Denmark, he tweets back, um, "It's not for sale." And this is like the weirdest auction I've ever seen on the planet. Like the president of the United States, like wants to buy this massive piece of land, and I didn't even know Denmark owned Greenland, and he's like, "It's not for sale." So that also was a weird comment. Like, why did followed he- by the ultimate troll when Trump tweeted that picture of one of his hotels? Like, did you see that? Oh like, no, saying, I, 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 he basically I, tweeted Nuke. like, I, "I definitely won't do this," and it was a picture of like a Trump Tower, like on a on a barren like Greenland landscape. That that's so funny <laughs> yeah. that he that he did that. And so I'm thinking, but I didn't even see that, which would have 
definitely set me off. But just these two world leaders like bantering in this way like this about, you know, people live there, you know, it's this huge piece of land. There's all these natural resources. Where, what, how did Denmark end up owning Greenland? Is it from like Eric the Red a thousand years ago? Like what is going on here? And so I started to research it and I thought, okay, there's some weird things going on with Greenland that I didn't know about. So I learned, I learned a lot about Greenland. And then instead of just writing an article, I had never done a Kickstarter before. So I decided to do a Kickstarter, which, so I said, okay, I'm gonna raise a hundred million dollars so I could buy Greenland. <laughs> and I wrote all, and instead of writing an article, I wrote just all the reasons why I wanna buy Greenland, why people should let me buy it as opposed to Trump or some other country. And and then I had, you know, with Kickstarter, you have to put all the rewards. Like, so I said, okay, $50, you could be a citizen. $100, I'll make you an earl. $1,000, you could be a duke. And I'm carving out all this like acreage for people. And, 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 and then I was able to list though all the reasons why I thought this was interesting. Like there's a lot, all these rare earth minerals and there's a company called Greenland Natural Resources, which is actually 100% owned it's by China. China. Yeah, it's yeah. China. So this is all, again, another weird, China now is entering the picture. Right. And so there's all these weird things I didn't know. I didn't know Kickstarter. I, and, and, and so this article, quote unquote, that I had now published on Kickstarter versus a normal place was starting to get shared everywhere. And so that was interesting for me. And then Kickstarter shut it down. And so they shut it down because I'm obviously not, people started donating money right. and uh, I, Kickstarter and then GoFundMe, the same experience. They shut me down because I'm obviously not gonna raise a hundred million. So they, they, and they're on, they have to pay all the chargebacks to the credit card companies. Mm. So it could be a big money loser for them. So they just shut it down. But then I had a second story, which is I was just shut down by Kickstarter right. and GoFundMe. And so the whole thing is, here's a little experiment. And I gained a huge amount from it without any cost to me. So I learned all this stuff about Greenland. I learned about Kickstarter. I'd never done a Kickstarter before. So suddenly now I knew how to do a Kickstarter. I spent some time studying best crowdfunding practices and I learned about Kickstarter. and. Uh, and then I learned this new format I could write articles in, which was weird. And then I had a second story on top of it, which was that they censored me and here's what happened. So just right. that small impulse allowed me to experiment in ways that I wouldn't have been able to otherwise and learn a whole bunch of things that now I can do a Kickstarter or now I can right. speak intelligently about buying Greenland or whatever. And it's super funny. Yeah, and it's funny. <laughs> it's like, right. wait, what? Like, first of all, you know, can a country buy another country? Yes or no. Can an individual buy a country? And what's interesting is that you got shut down, not on the merits right. of what you were attempting to do, but on kind of a side technicality, which was probably motivated just by extreme discomfort right. at, what, at what was going on. And they're them trying to figure out, like, we got to find a way somehow to shut this down. Yeah, and people were like uh, sending money in, like they were like wiring money in. And so- And the sheer aud audacity of the whole thing. You yeah. Know, it, it, it's not dissimilar from, uh, and I know you've talked about this as well, Richard Branson saying, saying, give me, you know, go into Boeing and saying, give me an airplane. Yeah, no, that's you know, a great it's like, example. It's so ridiculous that they would do that, but there's something about where naivete meets audacity, you know, an, an audacious, you know, dream, and then some steps are taken that that's how anything amazing is created. Well, there's so many layers of, you can't do this involved in every, any creative act because if there, if there, if people weren't telling, if, if people weren't saying, "Rich, you can't do this," then thousands of other people probably would have done it by now. Uh -huh. So it's 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 kind of finding where people are saying you can't do this, but when you ask yourself why, there's no real reason. 
Might as well try it. Right. So like with this, there's no reason why I couldn't start a Kickstarter to raise $100 million <laughs> to buy Greenland. And I learned something. And, uh, you know, all the times like people say, oh, well, you know, you can't start a podcast. Have you ever done interviews before or a radio show? Like leave it to the professionals. No, I think I can do it. Like why mm. can't I do it? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'll, t- I'll tell you another just quick experiment. It's not as it's not as interesting as Richard Branson. Richard Branson is really an interesting example because this is a 27 year old guy who was a magazine publisher and had no experience with anything relating to airlines. British Airways had a monopoly in England on airlines. Heathrow only dealt with British Airways, and Richard Branson didn't have money, and he simply calls up Boeing and asks to borrow a plane. They give it to him. I mean, the details, I'm skipping over the details. They just lend him a plane for a year. He throws like, yeah, you could use this one landing strip. We don't really use that much. Same with JFK. And suddenly he has a plane going back and forth. Like, right. you know, that every, I'm sure at every step of the way, people were saying to him, are you insane? And, but what does it hurt to ask? And then of course, there's subtleties, there's skills to asking. And how did he ask? And all these things that he used skills learned from being a music magazine publisher. Mm. But still, it's this combination of skills with audacity, with, you know, like, why can't I? And allows you to go forward on, on so many different different things. Right. I think both those examples, Greenland and the Richard Branson example, are illustrative of of both of these books. That, well, the, the the book that you have out now, think like a billionaire, and the book that you have coming out next year called Skip the Line. Like there are there are lessons in both of those examples that could be pulled from both or either of those books. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because let's say, well, let me ask you: when you were starting to run in marathons and then ultra marathons and Ironman things, and you were, you were in your mid forties, I, I bet you there were a lot of people saying to you, Rich, maybe you should just stick with a six K or whatever. <laughs> like yeah. The- plenty of that. Plenty of that. I, but I look at it as sort of the, 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 the frog in the warm water that's coming to a boil slowly. Like there is an incremental, like sort of compounding path that you can take towards, towards like an athletic goal that's different from, I mean, I guess I did skip the line and that I didn't do all that little stuff. And I went right to like ultra distance and didn't pay my dues or didn't, didn't take that yeah. traditional route. Let, and that let's regard, not forget, you like, didn't start with 5Ks, <laughs> then 10Ks. But I was an athlete. Like you, I can, I mean, look, I can minimize it. Um, but yeah, I guess for somebody not steeped in this world, it, it does sound like a little um, insane and ridiculous. It was insane, but, Rich. Yeah. Like you, were, you weren't an athlete then. <laughs> Right? No, I had I had a past as an athlete. Right, in but, high school. But logically, yeah, like rationally on paper, like it didn't make sense. And so and and yet look what happens. You you ran, you know, I don't I don't know the exact the ultra iron whatever on every island of Hawaii, you know, one day at a time. Right. Like you do these you did these incredible feats that I'm sure many people every step of the way kept telling you you can't, but that's what puts you on the other side where you suddenly if you go past enough of you can't do this then suddenly you're the only one doing it. And mm-hmm. so you were the only one in the world who had the, the the kind of resources and set of experiences and set of talents that you had, where you were running in all these races, but you were also, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, going towards this vegan lifestyle. You had the experience of being a lawyer. So you were able to, uh, you know, you, you had a better capability of writing about all these experiences than most people would. So you were able to combine them all into being the only ritual out there doing these events, books, podcasts, 
you were there's no one who can compete. Yeah, well, I think it's an example of of um, having all of these skills in a variety of disciplines that I tried over the years that weren't necessarily matched up with with like my ultimate talents and certainly not my my passion or a, or a sense of purpose. That when they finally found the right outlet, it all like congealed to create you know an amazing result. In the same way that you know if somebody was to say to you like you don't have the credentials to be a podcast host, but many years ago you did your three a.m. show, you learned how to talk to people, you learned how to create something that's entertaining, you are doing stand up comedy, like you've done, you've been writing, you've all of these other areas like all contribute to your ability to sit behind a microphone and be engaging and be entertaining and be curious, all these skills that you've developed over the course of a lifetime. I mean, I would say similarly, I took a, I took a million depositions as a lawyer. I learned how to ask questions. And I think that my my the my true skill set as a podcaster was developed through sitting in thousands and thousands of AA meetings, listening to people tell their stories and learning how to tell my own story. That was my training ground for being a public speaker and being a podcast host. You learn how to be empathetic. You learn how to listen. You develop uh, this, this, this great capacity for compassion for the human condition that I think lends itself towards creating a safe and, and interesting environment to explore those very themes with another person sitting across from you. Yeah, I think I think that's so interesting because I think that does come across, like your compassion for your guests comes across so much in your podcast, I think because of your experiences. And, you know, I always wonder about this idea that vulnerability, like the kind you experience in AA, the kind you experience in, in or one should experience in, in writing and maybe all forms of art, vulnerability sort of buys freedom. Like when you're vulnerable, when you are able to admit to what can go wrong, what has gone wrong with you in the past, the mistakes you've made, now you're free. Like nobody can say, well, you can't say this, you've done this. Right. And I, I, yeah, I said that, I'm an idiot a lot of the time, <laughs> bring it on and you're free. You don't have to deal with people saying, well, Rich, you can't talk about health. You had this and this happen to you when you're 20s. All right, yeah, read my book. It's in it. I already told so, you about yeah. that. Yeah. So you're free from from all that stuff. And the and the more vulnerable, like how can people, you know, uh, attack that? Like can't say, well, now you're not allowed to write about this because you experience this. No, there's no rules. And and yeah, I'm just being authentic, and that allows me to be as creative as I want in this area. Uh, I'm creative even about my mistakes. Well, your specific strain of authentic vulnerability was really a tipping point in your creative career. Like when you yeah. finally made this decision that you were going to be honest and write about it, write about your life and your experiences in a very transparent way. I'm sure there's a lot of fear um, that preceded that, but when you mustered up the the courage to do that, that's really when things change for you. Oh yeah, completely, and to the point that now. I don't even, like if I'm writing something, I don't publish it unless I'm afraid of what people are going to think of me. And I don't try to say something that's gonna, I just ask myself at the end, right before I hit publish, is this, am I really saying something new and unique here? Uh, because I don't wanna say something that everyone else has said. Or am I saying something where I'm really afraid? Oh no, what is what are X, Y, and Z gonna think of me? What are these people gonna think of me? What are my friends gonna think of me? What are my readers going to think of me? Mm -hmm. So I, I, I always have to double check myself because if you're not afraid of what you're creating, 
there's a chance then that, okay, everybody else has done it because they weren't afraid either. And so there's gotta be some resistance somehow that you get over. Uh, Like even something I wrote recently, I I was legitimately afraid, well, is this gonna shed a new light on everything I've written for the past 10 years because I'm admitting to this other thing? And uh, I was was nervous and correctly so, but that's okay. That's, that's, that's how you learn is, is getting over that all, every time. Yeah. When I wrote, I think I probably told you this previously, but when I wrote Finding Ultra, like I really had to get into the mindset of, of writing in my private journal that no one was ever going to read. Like I had to get comfortable um, communicating things about my life that I'm ashamed of and that I'm embarrassed about. And I remember when I sent the manuscript to my editor <laughs> at the publisher, I, I looked at my wife and I just, I said, I hope I'm making the right decision. Like this could be the worst decision I've ever made. But I knew intuitively that the value of the book would be directly correlated to the extent to which I was willing to be vulnerable because why do it otherwise? You know, and I think, um, you know, uh, my book, Finding Ultra is, it's an addiction recovery memoir. It's also like this sports story and it's also kind of like a health and wellness primer, but, but, Ultimately, it could be categorized as a as a sports memoir, and like I hate sports memoirs because they're all they're usually written by athletes in the twilight of their career, and they're intended to kind of create a halo effect and 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 perhaps buy them a couple years in the spotlight. And that's why they're not good because they're inherently less than honest. And I've never won a race. It's not like I went to the Olympics or anything like that. Like, why should anyone care what I have to say about this? The only reason that this, the only way that this is gonna be compelling is if I, you know, take my specific experiences and try to connect with something more universal about the human condition. And that can only come through, you know, a profound level of honesty. Yeah, and that and that happened. You created something very unique, which was this sort of, combination of kind of a sobriety memoir, health and wellness, um, athletic memoir, plus uh, a reinvention memoir. So you were in your forties, a time when people think, well, my knees are starting to hurt. Maybe I shouldn't run marathons anymore. There's a lot of people are thinking like they're of slowing down and you were literally speeding up at that point. Mm-hmm. And I think you gave permission to, to, for people who were reading it to say, oh yeah, he stopped being a lawyer to do this, he stopped, you know, he, he became sober and, he, and then this started happening, he went vegan, this started happening. He's in his forties and he's doing all these athletic competitions. It's sort of like you gave permission, not only for other people to be equally vulnerable. And I'm sure you got lots of messages like, man, I was in the same situation as you and so on. And then, but you also gave people permission to, hey, I could, if he could do it, I could run a marathon or, or do something incredible when I'm 45 that I never thought I could do before. And I think that's something, like I'm curious now, like when you're thinking that that was a very pivotal story for you, right? And it's an iconic story. Like I'm, I was, you were, you were saying essentially, I was down and out, then this happened and then I became a superhero. So it's like this iconic story. Do you feel, do you ever feel like tied to that story? Like you have to keep, repeating it or, or find a new story? Do you, ever, do you ever grapple with the hold that story now has over you versus what the, sto- the hold you originally had on that story? Yeah, 100%. And I've worked really hard to kind of transcend that a little bit. Um, certainly, I think, I think when the book came out, it was sort of characterized as a book about running, which it isn't. Um, it's not about becoming an ultra marathoner. It's very much a choose yourself story. You know, it's Absolutely. about it's about the inherent power that we all have within ourselves to you know 
basically shift the trajectory of our life, even if we find ourselves in our 40s or in our later years, that that inherent capacity lives within all of us to tap into, uh, you know, a, a more a deeper um, reservoir of human potential in whatever way, you know, feels right to you. And I think it it took a long time for that message to kind of percolate um, out of what was considered to be a running book. But then, yeah, I felt, I wouldn't say trapped. I think that's too strong of a word, but, you know, this sense of being like, oh, you're the vegan ultra athlete. Like, yeah, that's something that I did, but it's only one aspect of who I am. And, the podcast very much is about, it's not about me, it's about my guests. It's about, um, it's about the next chapter, if the, if the book was gonna have you know, uh, an epilogue, like, okay, now what? Like, I, I leveraged some tools to grow and manifested this thing that I talk about in this book, but that growth continues. That's not the end of the story. I wanna continue to grow. If I could make these changes, what other areas in my life am I currently blind to? So let's go on a journey to explore that with the smartest, most interesting people that I can find. And that has nothing to do with my story and everything about you know the wisdom that's available in the world. And, and so now you've interviewed hundreds of really amazing guests, a lot of them kind of athletic, but not all of them, you know, uh, uh, you know, a lot of this is about wellness, but again, not, not all of it. It's, it's all people who have captivated you or interested you for various reasons. And I'm, 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 let me ask you this. So I'm debating this. So I've also interviewed hundreds and hundreds of my heroes and, you know, authors who are, you know, passing through the city. So I get to interview them and, and so on. And, and I've interviewed many, you know, people I've just always looked up to. And I'm starting to wonder, okay, after f- 500 of those, maybe sometimes I want to just say what I think about things rather than mm-hmm. just always interview right. people. Right. And and so I'm kind of going forth on that of, of mixing that up a little, not completely, but just mixing it up. So it's not, you know, there's 2 million interview podcasts out there now. When I, And we were just talking yeah. about this earlier when we were in 2014, there was like a hundred interview podcasts. I and know. now there's literally 2 million. I'm not even exaggerating it. And okay, and we've also interviewed everybody. And so now we haven't interviewed the whole planet, but we've interviewed a lot of people. So people start repeating things or saying similar things. And then, but I'm sure your audience, they're listening to you for a a reason. And maybe they wanna start hearing more of what you have to say uh, about a topic. And I wonder if you've ever debated doing kind of more solo stuff. Yeah, I mean, a couple thoughts. First of all, both of us have been doing this for a while. I started mine in late 2012. You've done more episodes than me, but I started a little bit ahead of you. Yeah. There's been a lot of overlap in our guests. We've been on similar journeys. Indeed, when we started, it was not a competitive environment. Both our shows went right to the top and kind of yeah. stayed there. And in the intervening years, this medium has be, has has been adopted in a very mainstream way. So the ecosystem has matured tremendously around us. We were both lucky enough to grab a little piece of real estate and hold on to it. But, you know, I, I certainly want wouldn't want to be somebody starting an interview-based podcast now. I think right. I think it, it would be very, very difficult to do that. So I'm extremely grateful um, to be in the position that I'm in, and I'm sure you feel the same way. Um, but you know, here we are, and I'm interested in your thoughts too. I'm going to throw this back to you. Like, 
what is the state of union in you know with this medium and as somebody who thinks about things in a counterintuitive way and with a different lens like you know what is the future of this and you know I'll continue to answer your question and and allow you to answer that when I'm done um, I think that you know I had Kamal Ravikant over here yesterday your good friend and we were talking and we were talking about your show and I said to to Kamal, I go, I tune into James, like James has lots of interesting people on his show, but I want to hear James. Like I, I'm, I'm fascinated by your, your, like your lens, your perspective on the world. And you're the reason that I tune in. So I think that that is a smart and appropriate pivot for you to start to have more standalone episodes with just your reflections and your thoughts. In my own case, I have thought about that. The hardest part of this whole podcast thing for me is doing the introductions. Like when I'm alone talking into a microphone, I'm so up in my head and it feels so unnatural. So the idea that I would sit down and just deliver a monologue, you know, spontaneously from whole cloth, even if I had an outline, that's like, that scares me. And I feel like that is a skill that I haven't yet honed. And perhaps that's a reason to attempt it. Or, or, or there's or a way it, to experiment you know? in the sense that Let's say you have just someone sitting here who's listening and occasionally maybe instead of like in an interview, it's let's say 50-50, but let's say in this case- You need a foil. Yeah, a foil. Yeah. You, you, you need someone yeah. who you're just gonna throw things against and if something doesn't quite stick, they'll inform you right. of it. Yeah, like a, like a more than like a, a, you know, a co-host, but somebody who, you know, can like- match your wits and push you to deliver a monologue here yeah, or there. Yeah, like let's say there's- I mean, go ahead. Sorry. Well, let's say there's an issue that, you know, triggered that emotional impulse for you this week. So something happened that bothered you and you just wanted to, and, and, and you wanted to talk about it, but not necessarily the issue, but even more globally, like what does this mean for either the world or people or what did I learn from this or the economy or whatever? Uh, and you just start ranting on it. Yeah, and I do have a little bit of a uh, of an insecurity around it. I think um, here's an example. So last year we did our first like live podcast event. We booked this big theater and we sold it out. It was like 1,200 seats. That's great. And the idea was to do a live podcast and and but also produce a show that was very you know that kind of transcended this podcast format to create an entertaining experience for people. Um, I had my sons play music and then in cue perform some live poetry. And then I did a live podcast with Paul Hawken, who's like this legendary environmentalist. And I conducted that podcast very much as if he was sitting across from me right now. Like I kind of maintained that format. And after the show was over, um, I basically went, you know, out into the hallway and just talked to people for as long as they wanted to talk to me. And I was there for hours and hours and hours. And I realized in retrospect, oh, these people, like, I think they're coming to see Paul Hawken, <laughs> you know? And and I realized like, oh, they they're they're they are coming to see me, which makes me uncomfortable. Like I it doesn't feel like I because I, I have profound imposter syndrome. Like I can't imagine why anyone would want to come and see me. Um, but so the growth for me is in is in owning that and and uh, and and living up to that on some level that that you know I have had certain life experiences that have value and that there is something interesting about sharing you know my perspective. Yeah, or what if you even went on Twitter beforehand and you said, "Listen, I'm going to try this solo episode thing, but give me some fuel. Uh, ask me a bunch of questions, yeah. and then you pick the four or five that you like the best and." 
you could even just do a 20 minute episode or, or, or attach a story from your life to each question along with the answer and, or your answer. And, uh, that's an episode. Right. Yeah. I think I'll probably try that. I think I'm, I'm, uh, I wouldn't say I'm in a rut, but I have, we have like a routine now and like, yeah. I know how it goes and it's working. Um, and, and you're somebody who's coming in as, you know, like this disruptive force who's like always, you know, got the waiter pads and you're writing down the 10 ideas every day. And you're like trying to buy Greenland and you're doing all this crazy <laughs> stuff. And what I love and appreciate it, appreciate, appreciate about it isn't just the, the kind of courage to do it. It's your relationship with the outcome I feel is very healthy. Like you're not, it's, it's not about whether it works or not. You're just doing it. Right. Because here's what I always think is that something's going to work. Some outcome will exist that I like, but it doesn't have to be the outcome of whatever it is I'm doing that day. So I'm doing something, let's say today or tomorrow or the next day, I'm doing something to to try something new or try an experiment or write something. Eventually the, the outcome might be bad. Like for instance, this Greenland Kickstarter thing. And again, this is a silly example, but that was essentially a failure. I didn't raise a hundred million dollars to buy Greenland. Kickstarter shut me down and it was fast enough. It didn't really get as widely spread as I, as a successful outcome would have been. But it was interesting. I learned something. I learned a whole bunch of things and then you move on because- And you have this amazing story. Yeah, I have an amazing story and now I have knowledge. Okay, here's how to do a Kickstarter if I want to try something new. And so- now I can do the next thing, which might be just as crazy or not. And the outcome may be good, maybe bad. Eventually there'll be, some outcomes will be better than others, but I'm, whether the outcome is bad or good, I'm learning from each thing. Right. You've canonized this as the 10,000 experiments rule. We right. all talk about the 10,000 hour rule. You're like, that's nonsense. Let's focus on 10,000 experiments instead. Yeah, because I, so the 10,000 hour rule, which, which, you know, was developed by great guy, uh, Professor Anders Ericsson. Uh, he basically determined if you devote yourself to 10,000 hours of what he calls deliberate practice at any field, you'll be among the best in the world at that field. And this was written about by Malcolm Gladwell in the book Outliers, and it kind of became a popular phrase after that. I just couldn't wrap my head around it, though, because I feel like I've gotten good at a bunch of different things, and I don't think I spent 10,000 hours at them. And I couldn't, and for some things, I couldn't figure out what does he mean by 10,000 hours. Like, I understand with, let's say you're, you know, doing a golf putt. Uh, I can understand practicing that for 10,000 hours and you'll get better at golf putting. But for something like uh, writing, what does it mean to spend 10,000 hours writing? Like this, there's there's so many nuances in a, in a creative field and there's, it's not like repetitive. It's not like I can get a, co- after I write a sentence, I can get a coach mm. to say, well, that sentence could have been better. Uh, so I didn't really, and I would write to him and he's always very smart and he was always very friendly to respond. And I read all these different theories, like, can I borrow hours from this other activity? So I was trying to get good at stand-up comedy. I started this, it's a random thing. I, start, I was got passionate about it about five years ago, started going up on stage, and I was trying to figure out, can I borrow from my 10,000 hours public speaking and some hours from my writing and some hours from just, I don't know, being funny? Uh, or how does, how does it work? 
And so the I would transferability of yeah. these these skills in in a variety of disciplines. Can you aggregate them to come up with your ten thousand hours? Yeah, or at least give me some head start. And he and he kept writing about well, what's the metric you're judging yourself with? And there's really no metric. Like, how do you determine if something, for instance, is good writing or not? Is it book sales? No. Is it if your favorite professor likes it? No. It's hard for for creative efforts. It's hard to have a, a metric of success for many for for sales ability for business ability. There's so many like other factors like luck, environment, the people you're dealing with, there's, it's, it's hard to, to measure uh, your success with these 10,000 hours. And, and it was confusing talking to him. So then I figured, well, maybe there are, and then the other thing that concerned me was, well, what if you take training methods now and go back to the 1920s? So for instance, if someone took people who, coaches who train for marathons and took those same techniques back to the 1920s when coaching techniques were so were, were not as advanced, uh, w- would it be then 100 hours to be the best in the world? Right. You know, the hours changed depending on how, the, how advanced the field is. So I, I, more things kept coming up that I didn't really understand. And that's when I started thinking of a, a, another model completely to measure my own success and then to, incre- to accelerate uh, my own learning in different fields. And so I was, right. I was very excited about that because it was... Uh, it basically took me two or three years to be a, a good, solid professional investor. It took me two years to achieve a level I wanted in, let's say, a game like chess, which is normally a hard skill, or computer programming, which is a hard skill. And then with 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 stand up comedy, also, I didn't, you know, I'm I was 48 years old at the time. I'm 52 now. I didn't want to go. 10,000 hours or 20 years right. to get good at something. It doesn't, I don't want to be on stage when I'm 68 years old trying to make a bunch of strangers laugh. Like it feels silly to me. I just wanted to get good at it now. I wanted to literally skip the line. Everybody kept telling me, don't think you can skip the line. Like we've Especially all worked hard. Especially in stand-up comedy. Like they're very, you know, respect your elders. And that's very much a, you know, you got to grind and and pay your dues. And yeah, that's what you would tell me. comedian will be like, you got to go up there and bomb a thousand times, you know, and and just keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. And in 10 years, you'll be good. Yeah, 10, they, 10 all, best case yeah, 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 is what yeah. they would say. And here you are, like you start, basically telling jokes on the subway, right? And, yeah. So I, and so, now you're headlining. Right. I'm, How, um, what is the time period? Uh, it's it's basically about five years, but like f- four years since I started taking it super seriously where I would mm-hmm. go up two or three times a week and more recently, you know, up to 10 times a week. So, uh, uh, but yeah, I had to construct, I had to really be very analytical about it and I would deconstruct every comedian's act. So I would understand what they were doing. And then I would explain it back to them. And they were like, huh, I never thought of it like that, which is fine. Like they were, they have their process. But then I started constructing experiments I can do to basically accelerate my learning. And I found every experiment really changed the way I would do comedy. So I would start uh, really, people would see me from one month to the next. And they're like, boy, when did you start doing X, Y, or Z? And I'm like, after this experiment I did where I, I saw these other things weren't working. Uh-huh. And sometimes the experiments are very simple. Like between jokes, what if you just lean back against the wall and look up at the ceiling for three seconds or for, <laughs> or for a half a second? Uh-huh. Like, so just even an experiment like that, because there's this feeling on stage that you have to spit everything out as quickly as possible. Or, you know, you mentioned one experiment I did. I went on this, sub- I wanted to tighten up my one-liner. So I went on the subway and 
did stand-up comedy on a crowded subway cars where nobody wants to hear you tell jokes. Nobody likes you. Nobody is, is in, in the best yeah. case, I the can't even- The bar towards getting a laugh is very high. Right, they're not, yeah. they didn't just pay a cover charge to see a right. comedian. They just want to get home. Like you're bothering them at that point. <laughs> and, and they're not drinking. So yeah. they want to drink. Some of them might be. Right, well, some of them might yeah. be. And most of them want to drink. And then this person just gets on the car and starts uh-huh. telling jokes straight at them. And it, it was, it's very difficult, but that- Did you get some laughs though? I did, yeah. yeah. Oddly- I would get on and I would say like, um, the one thing that got the most laughs is like, I was, I, is this, was this the six and a half stop? Like, is this, is this the train to Hogwarts? And so kids would laugh at that. Uh And then um, I did another one. uh, (laughs) Hey, I ordered an Uber pool, but they sent me the subway car. (laughs) So that got some laughs. Uh Those are like the main two things that got laughs. You have to be so comfortable with your vulnerability though. But I wasn't. It's like- I was with a friend of mine and this person brought on a video camera just so I could study it later. And I got on and I looked around, and I'm like, forget it. Uh, we just wasted our time. Like you could just put the camera away. And I was like, uh, and then I said, on second thought, just turn it on and let's just wait a second. Mm. So my friend turned on the video camera and then I just went off. So it just, right. I wasn't, I just went without thinking. And, and you know, sometimes people will laugh and sometimes people were like, you know, boo, like get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that happens. You gotta be okay with either one, right? Yeah, you gotta be okay with either one. I mean, that's the difference between true vulnerability and what I see a lot of now, which is, I call it performative vulnerability. It's sort of like, now it's cool to be vulnerable all of a sudden. And you see a lot of people using it in in a very, um, I feel like disingenuous way, like, oh, like when you're vulnerable online, that's how you get people interested in what you're doing. So I'm gonna do this. And it, it's it's like this weird, like fake vulnerability. Yeah, and I, I see that it's almost like you can't, I, I if you pick up a recent self-help book or any, almost any recent self-help book, and I'm not gonna throw the whole industry under the bus, but a lot of recent self-help books, you can't even, st- they're, they're, the author, always starts off like, well, I was in my darkest moment and then X, Y, Z happened and I started writing in my gratitude journal and whatever <laughs> and, and then everything became better. Uh-huh. And it's like, that's like a bad, and then even in Silicon Valley, it's like a badge of honor. Like, yeah, I failed at my first startup and blah, blah, blah. And then now, now I'm ready. And yeah, I, I agree. I think it's a way to kind of almost buy, it's almost too transactional, the vulnerability. Right, yeah, transactional, I think is a good word. And hand in hand with that, I get, I'm sure you do too, like I get all the galleys in the mail now. Yeah. When you host a podcast, like suddenly books just arrive at your house all the time. Like I get like six books a week in the mail. And generally there'll be, you know, the the upcoming self-help books, right? So I have so many self-help books being delivered on the regular here that it's made me very cynical about all yeah. of it. You know, I, I just look at this and I'm like, they're all, they all, and, and I can't possibly read all of them, but maybe you can, but no, you know, no. I just kind of page through them and I'm like, they just feel like different flavors of the same thing. And it's made me like less interested in all of that. Yeah, that's why I think we'll look at, you know, for instance, Finding Ultra or in my upcoming, you know, Skip the Line, I think about this. What are, forget about all self-help. What are my real stories for better or for worse, and what did I learn from them and what can I extrapolate? The extrapolation is what gives it the self-help 
categorization. Like, okay, I did this, this, and this. So that's a formula. But I always say I'm not giving advice. This is what worked for me specifically, but maybe it's broad enough it could work for others. And I always want to make sure it's it's just not like, there's a, not only is there a self-help genre, but they all kind of recommend the same thing. And, and you get this sense they're recommending it without real experience or they're recommending it so they can start getting speaking gigs, talking about it, because you can make a lot of money talking, you know, motivating companies. And so I always try to make my, make sure I'm saying something really unique, like this, this 10,000, you know, thinking about learning and the 10,000 hour rule and how I could succeed. Like you went through this in your mid forties, you left a profession and kind of started where you did start new professions and that a lot of people are going through that, but they always think, well, I'm already 45. How am I going to learn to be the best or the top 1% of some field? So people, so I can make a living at this. Cause you need to be in the top 1% roughly to, to make a living and to feed your family. And we're going through it just personally and as an economy. And so really grappling with that and how, I challenged myself to learn different things and how I failed at many things in the along the way. I had to think, well, what's what's happening? Did I, and that's where I went from the 10,000 hour rule to am I can I borrow hours or is there like shortcuts or cheat sheets or what's actually happening? And you have to really think inside what happened to me that I can bring out as a story. And I, I feel like you did that too with with Finding Ultra was your unique path to saying, hey, at 45, you could still be a top, you know, world-class athlete and do these things and get over these issues and change careers and on and on and on. Yeah, but I think my book was really just a story. Whereas you look at these things that have happened in your life and you look at other successful people and you're trying to extrapolate the themes and the lessons and then figure out a way to communicate a path forward through a lens or a, you know, a, a, a path that perhaps has never really been fully articulated, like the skip the line book that you have coming up. Like I haven't read it yet, but you've told me a little bit about it. And I think it's interesting because it's about, um, it's about this very thing of like, look, we're in a rapidly changing world where we're going to be compelled to have to reinvent ourselves. We're living longer, et cetera. And you don't want to just have to switch gears and figure out a new career later in life and start at the bottom, you're somebody who has had success in a variety of disciplines without really having to do that, without putting in 10,000 hours and somehow found your way into that like top tier, that top 1% of these disciplines. So what was it, what was the differentiator here and what can be learned from that experience that could be helpful to other people? Yeah, and I think, and, and, and look, there's other things too that I've massively, failed at. So you sort of learn along the way, uh, I better restrict my failure so I don't lose everything on this failure. So you have to also construct ways to get better at something where you're not risking your entire life. And like you even said earlier, you, you the transition from lawyer to you know everything else you're doing now, it took a while. Like people kind of think, oh, well, I'm going to quit being a lawyer and start being a podcaster and the money's just gonna roll in. It doesn't really work <laughs> no, like that no, no, for no. anybody in the yeah, world. Yeah. You know, it's 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 a process and and it's a process of trying lots of different things. It's a process of transition. It's a process of finding more and more things that you enjoy and that you love doing and that your your passions maybe lie and 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 maybe when you find something you're passionate about, you you're able to to double down on it. 
enough so that again you're not risking too much, but you double down and you see how how it works and how it feels, and it, it's a process. Yeah. So you've got this book about billionaires. Think like a billionaire. Yeah. Uh, I feel like culturally we we're we're in a moment where we're fetishizing these people, For, and, and, and on both mean? sides. Yeah. Both sides meaning what? Like some people, you know, you'll see politically people will say, "Well, banish all billionaires," or. Like so, right. somebody in politics said, um, and this is not, I'm very apolitical, but so, someone in politics said, you know, billionaires have not earned the money, they took the money. So there's a very kind of almost violent revolutionary backlash against these people who have accumulated this one particular number or more. And on the flip side, you can say, well, these are people perhaps who have accumulated certain habits um, that maybe you'd want to emulate if you wanted success, even if it wasn't success about money. And then you can also say, okay, well, are there benefits uh, to this this class of people who have accumulated so much wealth? Are they giving to charity? Are they solving world problems? Are they creating impact more than mm. if the money was being used in other ways? And I shouldn't even say, say being used because often money is created. That's something that's in, a lot of people don't understand about the economy. There could be more money next year than there than there is this year because people people who are innovative use their innovations to to create money seemingly out of thin air. But you know, if Elon Musk sells more Teslas and he raises money by having an IPO and this Tesla goes public and whatever money is basically created and put some to some extent put into his pocket. So it's not like they took. They've created it out of their innovations, but sometimes they're bad guys and sometimes they're good guys like anyone yeah. else. I mean, there is a sense, I think, that you don't get to that level of, of wealth and accumulation without stepping on a lot of people and having to do some dastardly things. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's kind of the sense. And it's easy to have that sense because let's say there's a few thousand billionaires and there's 300 million other people in the US. So we're all allowed to trash this uh, they're, they're certainly not a minority just because even though there's just a few thousand of them, they're very, they're people who are very privileged and benefit and, and they have every advantage in society. And by the way, some of them are really bad people, but some of them are enormously charitable. Like you look at efforts like Bill Gates. And again, I don't know if, if whether you like Microsoft Windows or not, but you look at Bill Gates, he, he has spent hundreds of millions or billions to try to eradicate malaria in Africa. And yeah, you ask yourself, well, if if the money had gone to a government instead of Bill Gates, would that government have been able to solve malaria as well? I don't know. I'm not an expert, but it seems like Gates has made a dent on it and nobody else historically has made a dent on it. And and I've I heard one interesting story where Bill Gates gave like a hundred million dollars to a government, just like the US might give a hundred million dollars to the government. Let's, you know, here's aid, solve malaria. And then that particular government uh, was corrupt, the leaders left, and the money was just gone, not spent, disappeared, probably into some Swiss account, the leaders moved away and whatever. So the next leader got in and Bill Gates said, okay, I'm gonna give you hundred million again, but now I'm gonna have more control over it and see how you spend it and see where it's put. And he made a dent in eradicating malaria in this particular country. So you, you have to look at instances too and see what's what's happening. What are these people doing with the money? Right, but isn't, Bill Gates more of an outlier in that regard. Like there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of guys with, you know, lots of yachts and things yeah, like that. I would say he is an outlier. <laughs> you know? I would, but, but there's also, you know, there's thousands of billionaires. So let's even say there's a few hundred outliers who are trying to do charitable things. And by the way, I'm not trying to, 
really the purpose was of that book was to say, okay, I've been so bad and such a failure at dealing with money. Maybe I could learn what did they do that I don't do that's I could learn from. So it really had nothing to do with whether they were good or bad. And, and so I always feel like I'm apologizing it's a little. It's also not about making money. It's about right. habits and a, and a perspective on on life and how they kind of live their day on the daily that, right. lead, that lead them in that direction. Right, like not, not a single thing in that book is about, well, this is the kind of investing they did. And this is the kind of companies they would start. And here's how they would boss people around. But but just on the, the Bill Gates thing, yes, he's probably an outlier, but you do see lots of examples of of charitable things, or even let's say not charitable, like, you know, Ken Langone, multi-billionaire, started Home Depot. He he saw a problem, which is that many people didn't have access to the full range of home improvement tools that they would probably want. And he created Home Depot, it became big, and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of jobs were created. Just, just you know, maybe millions of jobs over the 30 years Home Depot has been around. And, you know, over 100,000 people got very wealthy by being employees of Home Depot. So he created real wealth in society, he solved lots of problems. Now, uh, Ken Langone, almost every hospital in New York is named after him because he gives so much to charity. And I don't really know him, so I can't say good or bad. But again, I asked myself, well, okay, it seems like both from the capitalist side, he created lots of jobs and he solved a big problem. He was also charitable. What okay, Then I asked, what habits did he have that maybe are worth emulating? And if somebody else has a different opinion of him, that's fine. But then I can say, mm-hmm. well, I like these habits and I'll uh, emulate them. Having a strong family, for instance, or having you know an, a, a, a strong ability to execute on ideas, which is something I didn't always have. Right. I mean, you kind of break it down. You've got like obsession and you know overcoming resistance, persuasion, empathy, problem solving, and this idea of skill versus habit, which I thought was super interesting. Yeah, like it's not, like these people have, a lot of these people have real skills as opposed to just, oh, they're waking up at 6 a.m. every day or they're you know going to the gym every day. These are all good habits and healthy habits to have, but how did Richard Branson persuade someone at Boeing to lend this 27-year-old nobody an entire plane, like a $150 million plane? I can't call up Boeing and just ask for a plane, like they'll hang up on me. <laughs> what do you mean you tried to buy Greenland? Why not? Oh, well, yeah, it's true. You know? But I, I mean, his, I his ace in the hole was that there was an anti-competitive climate at the time. Well, was that his ace in the hole or did he find that in the hole? Mm. Like he was the one who brought that up to them. Like he, they basically he, would said no. And he's like, well, listen, how else are you going to compete and get competitive pricing with British Airways? So he put this right. in their heads and convinced them. Right. And so it, it's it's interesting to see the little nuances of how these people achieve things because it's it is nuanced each each skill they had you know their skills at 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 persuasion or sales or execution or having creative ideas or even the way they would do things like so you know Damon John's an interesting example he was he was a waiter at Red Lobster and on the weekends he would sew these hats on his corner and they had like hip hop logos on it and then suddenly Macy's makes this $100,000 order and he doesn't, he can't make $100,000 worth of hats. He works works full-time as a waiter at Red Lobster. So what did he do? He said, of course I will give you a hundred, give me a week, I'll get you $100,000 worth of these hats. Uh He he had no reason to say yes. And, and, And then he goes to his mom and he's like, mom, I need to mortgage your house. And so he mortgages his mom's house 
gets, you know, the money out, hires a bunch of seamstresses, and they work, you know, 24 hours a day in, in his mom's now mortgaged house. And then a few days later, he delivers the goods to Macy's. They give him the $100,000 check. He pays off uh, uh, the bank, gets the mortgage back. And now he has FUBU, which goes on for $6 billion in sales. So what is the skill in that? Is that, it- that skill is what I call ready, fire, aim. So this kind of instinct to get all ready, like he knew he, he sold hats, $100,000 worth of hats to Macy's. He hadn't yet aimed. He had no idea how he was going to do it, but he fired. He said, yes, I'll do it. Uh, and and that, this, why is that a skill? Because he knew there would be some way he can connect the dots. And he probably already had thought it out, but he knew no matter what, there would be some way he could connect the dots. And a lot of people would say, oh, I can't sell you $100,000 worth yet, but maybe I could sell you $1,000, we could do a test or whatever. Uh-huh. He he just went right for it. And so Sarah Blakely, who, um, you know, she's the founder of Spanx, she had a similar thing. Jesse Itzler's wife. Jesse Itzler's yeah. wife. Jesse, I'm sure, yeah. has been on, yeah, on this yeah, podcast. Yeah. He's been yeah. on mine a bunch of times. And- she was selling fax machines door to door. She had this idea for Spanx. She goes to sell them. She only has her one example, Spanx. The woman tried it on and said, yeah, I'll buy $300,000 worth of it. And Sarah Blakely's like, done, I'll get it to you. Right. She had no manufacturer. She didn't uh. know how to manufacture clothes at all. And it's it's not easy to convince some factory to, to manufacture all these these clothes for you. Are you gonna pay? Do you, what, who are you? You're not a real company. And yet she found a manufacturer, she delivered the, the clothes and then Spanx was in business. So that was again, this ready, fire, aim ability. But ready, fire, aim has to be underpinned by a profound sense of, of, of belief in oneself, right? Believe in like oneself. You're not, you're, not gonna, you're not gonna move forward on ready, fire, aim unless you, you like have some level of deep conviction about what you're doing. Yeah, and, and, it, and she, Sarah Blakely and Damon John in this case um, had had enough experience with let's say clothing and clothing design to, to roughly know how they were gonna connect the dots. Maybe they fully know, but, but more likely they roughly knew how they could do this, how they could scale what they were already doing to something a hundred or a thousand times more. And so you, you needed this confidence, but you needed knowledge too. Uh, mm-hmm. So another example is Byron Allen. He recently, a few years ago, he bought the Weather Channel for $300 million. So he started out, he was a stand-up comedian actually. He was the youngest guy ever on the Johnny Carson show. And and then he had all sorts of weird experiences in comedy. And he said, you know what? I don't want to be in front of the camera. I want to be behind it. I want to be the business guy. That's where the power seems to be. So he started pitching these shows, late night shows to television networks. And they're like, ah, no, this sounds kind of weak. And he said, don't worry about it. You don't have to buy this show. Let's just do a 50-50 split on the ads. And then he found the advertisers and it cost the the stations nothing. If he didn't come up with the money, he, they would never have aired a show. But he kept fighting the advertisers, and it's like 25 years later, these shows are still running, and he's accumulated so much money from them that he's he bought the Weather Channel for 300 billion. He's bought other I networks. Know. It's such a crazy story because if you don't know that story, he's just the weird guy at 3 a.m. You because that show is still on. I think uh, you but, turn it on, like yeah, his, yeah. his the, interview show, his, and you're he, like. 
who is, that guy's still doing that? And it's kind of like- It's not really a quality not, show. It's not a good show. And <laughs> right. you're like, this show's been on for like 20 years. Like, how is this possible? Well, it's because he owns everything. Yeah, and he's, you know? he sold all the ads. Yeah. And you know, at that time, a lot of networks, and still do, they, they just have infomercials for a half hour. So <laughs> right. he, they basically say to him, if you, we're, we're running the infomercial, unless you show up with like one penny more, we're running the infomercial. So he just went out there, got the advertisers and got syndicated all over the United States created, you know, ES Networks, I think is the name of his right. company. And yeah, he was like a, a fair to middling stand-up comic mm-hmm. who was part of that whole like comedy store, you know, ecosystem. And I'm sure everybody told him he was insane for why, you know, why nobody would even think to do that. Yeah, and it's scary you know? too. In all these instances, there's a little bit of a, a fear factor, like, oh gosh, what if I don't raise the money, but he limits his risk. It's like, he doesn't have to put together the show either, really. First off, you see those shows, they're really cheaply done. It's just, yeah. they're like a podcast on TV. I know, I know. <laughs> and, and, but he's, he went out and sold the advertising. And again, that's ready, fire, aim, but there's also skills in sales, creativity, persuasion, and knowing what doors to knock on. And, and if that didn't work, I'm sure he would have found some other thing. We think that's like their one idea. And if they didn't do that, they would have been a failure. No, my guess is all three of these people, Damon, John, Sarah Blakely, um, Byron Allen, they probably would have succeeded at some other idea if that one hadn't right, worked. Right. Well, on this theme of experimentation, uh, you, you decide to publish this book on Scribd. Yeah. So, like, so that's so bizarre. Yeah. So, why so, would you do that? I've, I've, so I've published mainstream quite a bit, and then I've self-published quite a bit. Uh, so Choose Yourself was self-published, and actually is my my best-selling book. And yeah, then that, I self-published. That's the smartest thing you ever did. Yeah, that was yeah, that was basically. I'm so glad I self-published that one, and I did what I called professionally self-published Choose Yourself. Like I hired a real cover designer, I hired real editors, I hired a real marketing company, and I really did it as if I was a, a publishing company, even even better than what I thought a publishing company would do, and it and it worked really well. But for this one, I felt like, ah, uh, you know, I've already done one route, I've done another route. I want to experiment a little bit, and Scribd is like this Netflix for books. You, you sign up and whatever, there's million, yeah, you can read every book that's been published ever or close to it. And they just started doing kind of like what Netflix did with shows. They started creating their own original books, Scribd Originals. And so I, they approached me. I was, t- I was telling the CEO about this book and he said, well, how about we publish it as a Scribd Original? And I said, okay. And so it's an experiment and it's kind of six months exclusive there. And it's great. So I really enjoyed the experience. I've done, you know, part of the experiment was, what are the benefits? Well, they have a a million plus subscribers that get their emails. Oh, so my name will be on an email to a million people. Mm. So just more, you know, this is not the last book I'm ever doing or it's not the first book, but it's nice to have exposure to an additional million size audience and to build a relationship with this Netflix of books, depending on, you know, they seem to be continue growing and, so yeah, it's just another experiment. And are you happy with how it's working out there? Like, is there a sense that this was the right move versus just putting it up on Amazon as a self-published work? Yeah, because on Amazon, again, I'm like every other book out there. And it's not like I'm against Amazon. I love publishing there and I love self-publishing there. But here's a case where I'm one of the only books in this category of Scribd Originals in a website that mm. you know maybe up to 2 million people go to all the time. So I figured, let's see if this is a real advantage. And you always wanna go to the room least crowded. So when we were doing, when we started doing podcasting, particularly when you were started doing it, 
this, this, this was the room least crowded in, in media. Yeah. Now it's very crowded, but it's, like you said earlier, it's a good thing we got here when it wasn't crowded so we could carve out our space. And here I'm on Scribd, that, that's in publishing, I don't know, something like five million books a year are published now on Amazon, a lot of them self-published. Okay, here's a place where there's only four books published in this way. Right. You know, they they all the mainstream published books are on script. The and upside now these four opportunity books. is much higher. Yeah. For for having something break out in and, a meaningful way. And if the book failed completely, okay, it'll be like 18 of my other 22 books right. that failed completely. <laughs> right. So that's no big deal. One of the things that I think we we share in common is uh, an aversion to setting long-term goals. Like, I don't know about you, but people ask me all the time, like, what's the, what's your vision? Like, where do you see yourself in five years? Or what, you know, what's, what's your life like in 10 years? And I honestly, like, I always feel guilty or perhaps even ashamed because I, I don't even think about that. Like right. I can't, half the time I, I'm, I find myself like making something up to answer the question. And I've realized more recently, like, I'm just going to be honest. Like, I don't, I have no idea, and I don't really expend mental energy in that way. That's funny, I didn't know that about you because I do think a lot of people talk in terms of, well, I wanna be here in three years and then six years and then 10 years, and and then, well, in order to be here in 10 years, I've gotta do this today and like next month and whatever. And I think it makes no sense to have goals. It sort of implies that my knowledge now is so much greater than it might even be in 10 years from now, that my 10 year from now version of myself better listen to me now because I'm smarter now in terms of where I should be in 10 years. I don't know if this is all adding up, yeah. all the numbers, but uh, basically you're learning more every day. So tomorrow or next month, I might know something about myself and my interests and my passions or about the world that changes where I wanna be in a month or two months or in a year. So you can't, I don't understand like how people could even figure out how will they even know what they wanna be in one year or five years? Well, I think that goals have their place. Like if you say, you know, if you say like, this is something I wanna manifest in the next year, then there are certain steps you're gonna have to undertake to realize that. Like if I'm, if I wanna do a crazy race, for example, or complete a book, like there are, you can set up benchmarks to lead you in that direction. And I think that's completely appropriate. But I think forecasting a vision for your life I guess it works for some people. For me, it doesn't. Like everything that has been successful in my life has been, I wouldn't call it happenstance, but it didn't result from me, you know, putting it on a vision board. Yeah, like, like you know, I think that's a good um, difference between goals and well, what was the word you just used? Um, Stepping stones, no. bench- benchmarks. No, but, but, but like that. Aspirations. It's, it's, you know, there's a difference between having something that you're moving towards today. So like, let's say you wanna get a faster running time for a marathon. Okay, you could adjust things a little bit in how you're running. And today you're gonna try this and see if your running is faster. Mm -hmm. But what if two months from now, and and all of this could be because a year from now, you wanna enter in this marathon and do it faster than a certain time. But what if two months from now, I don't know, Disney calls you up and says, Ritual, we want you to play Iron Man's father in the next (laughs) Iron Man movie. And you're like, well, I was gonna do this marathon and (laughs) that's my goal. So like, call me back in a year. You wouldn't do that, you would just change. Now that's an extreme example, but yeah. So today you could say, well, I really wanna benchmark myself against how I'm doing a race and I'm gonna improve 
Otherwise, you would just, there's no reason to do anything. But things change and the things you love doing change. What if suddenly you decide, oh man, I really love uh, writing cookbooks and, and you decide two months into the year, I really just want to spend this year, all my creativity, writing cookbooks and, that, and your goals change. So the year I started more passionately doing stand-up comedy, my goal, so to speak, for the year was I was going to write a novel. That was where, where I was going to put my creativity. But then I just started going up more than once a week on a stage. And then I got heckled once. And I'm like, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm going to just next week, I'm going to come back three times. And I'm going to figure out why I was heckled. And I'm going to talk to people and, and think about this. And it just never stopped. I never got back to writing that novel. Things change. But ultimately, the fidelity is to your curiosity, right? And yes. I think when you when you double down on your curiosity and you have the willingness and the tenacity to follow that, like to keep, continue to pull on that thread, it creates a compounding interest that that in in a real world context shows up in opportunities that you couldn't have predicted or imagined. Yeah, like let's say, for instance, Greenland suddenly. Uh, James, we, we now we're interested. <laughs> yeah, suddenly, suddenly, or or let's say yeah. suddenly, uh, somebody says, you know, this is a great idea. How about we write a movie about somebody who buys Greenland and what happens? Right. And okay, like what I if it actually works. Yeah, like yeah. well, I, I would say yes to any of the possibilities <laughs> instead of going back to a stand-up stage. You know, it just because you, you sort of fall in love with different things and you experiment enough with enough things that you know, you figure out, oh yeah, this is pulling me a little bit more. So I'm going to double down on it. And then everyone will say, well, what, wait a second, you were just doubling down on this other thing. No, no, no. Now I really feel more passionate about this. So again, it's, as long as you don't say, ah, no, I'm not going to take care of my kids anymore. I'm going to backpack around the world. Uh -huh. There's certain responsibilities that you have to do. But uh, again, with given uh, our our creativity is very free. We could do we could spend it in most cases how we want. And you should try lots of things and and see where your 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 heart is kind of compelling you to go further. Mm -hmm. Even whether you're failing or succeeding at that point doesn't matter. It's like where you ah oh, I want to get better. This is fun when it when I'm doing it, and it's not fun when I'm doing other things. Right. In thinking about this podcasting space, I think there's how many podcasts are there now? Like. I think 2 million. 2 million. Yeah. 2 million podcasts. Like how many hours of people talking spontaneously about whatever's going on in their mind? And I thought the other day, I thought, what if podcasting existed in like 1780? You know, what if, what if, what would podcasting look like in 18? Like if we could go back and just listen to people talking about the times in that time, what an incredible historical record that would be that would shape and, and, and change how we think about history and how we consume history and how we synthesize world events. And now we're creating that now, like a hundred years from now, this will all still be, you know, available to people to yeah. look back on and, and try to better understand, you know, this moment in time. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, you know, imagine back in the 1780s, like just Benjamin Franklin and John Adams would be having like, right. you know. What if Marcus Aurelius, <laughs> instead of like, you know, writing his meditations was doing a podcast about it. Yeah, a podcast about Stoicism. Oh, like, yeah. Seneca, can you please come on my <laughs> podcast? <laughs> I'll promote your yeah. notes of Seneca. <laughs> we'll talk about it everywhere. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and you know, yeah. I wonder about now with 2 million, how do you separate out the good from the bad, and, and I don't like to call any of them bad, like everyone's trying, but I'm again, it's like we were talking about earlier, I'm trying to just always 
understand formats and how much, you know, how can I change the format just slightly even from my usual one. And I, you've been doing a lot of great stuff with YouTube and videos. Like you've been combining kind of your, your podcast voice with uh, kind of more uh, conceptual video about what you're talking about. Yeah, and we just started doing that and I wanna do more of that, but that's that's an experiment. Yeah, it's totally yeah. an experiment. How long will you do it? Maybe you do 10 of them, five of them, 50 of them. And people will say, well, no, you gotta be consistent and focused. That could be true. Maybe you need to do a thousand of them and then it just suddenly you have millions of views per video, but you might get tired of doing them after 20. And you say, no, let's, let's focus on TikTok instead. So, mm -hmm. or whatever you focus on next. And so, yeah, it's just a matter of, I'm always, it's interesting now too, because another thing that's happened in the media world that's changed, which is that I think followers don't matter anymore. So people have, you know, X number of Twitter followers, YouTube subscribers, Instagram followers, Facebook followers. I don't think that matters anymore because I think algorithms have have basically uh, ruled over followers. So, yeah. so the algorithm will decide where your who sees your video or who sees your photo, not so much your followers. Because if you have, let's say you have 100,000 followers or even 10,000 followers, and let's say a lot of them have hundreds of followers and they're on Instagram for three minutes, the algorithm's got to pick which one of their followers are gonna be rewarded with their eyesight. So uh, uh, I, th I think it's very hard in today's world to come up with good appealing content that rises to the top. It's, mm. it's, it's, in a good way, it's much more equalitarian. Everyone's got an equal footing because followers don't matter as much. On the second hand, it's harder to curate, I think. Well, it, it makes it rife for trying to manipulate, it becomes about manipulating the algorithm. Yeah. I think that leads to substandard content in order to game the system. But I think it is true, like the follower count thing. I mean, there was a day, you know, in 2009, if somebody with a million followers like retweeted your tweet, oh, yeah. you would you would you get would celebrate like, that in day. five minutes, you would get 30,000 new people following you. Like now, every once in a while, somebody of that stature will share something that I've done. And it, zero impact on yeah. anything, you know? It's like that ship has sailed and I don't have a huge Facebook um, following. I think it's like 130,000 or something like that. It's substantial, but I'll post the podcast on Facebook and it'll get like two shares. Yeah. And like it'll, and it'll show you how many people it sees it and it'll be like 400 people. It's like, unless you pay to boost this stuff or create ad campaigns around it, they just choke it. So I try, I try that too. I, I, I pay ad campaigns sometimes around the podcast. Does, useless, doesn't work. Like, <laughs> doesn't so work. I'll have 50,000 people view it magically. Uh -huh. I don't know who these 50,000 people are. And but still, it doesn't matter. Yeah, still five people clicked on it. Right. So, so, so it's not even, it, has nothing to do with the content. I don't know what it has to do with. And, and I'm pretty sure I'm structuring these ads right, but I don't know all of that. It's always important to still have as high quality as possible, but other things are sort of rising to the top of importance and it's, they're harder to, to figure out. And I don't like the idea. It's even hard to game the algorithm, but I don't even like thinking in that way somehow. I, don't, I never think about it. Yeah. I, ultimately, like, I think, you know, people will say, oh, you should do this and you should, uh, here's the strategy and here's how you should lay out your Instagram. And I just can't, I can't wrap my head around any of that. And I just believe to this day, even if it's hard, that ultimately, you know, the highest quality content will rise to the surface and it will find its audience. And that means that you have to be in it for the long run and you have to be patient and you can't be upset if it's not getting the, you know, the, the level of attention that somebody else who's, who's specifically crafted content 
to create some level of virality is going to get. Yeah, and so so what's interesting there is you have a specific point of view also. So you're you're not you're not just hoping that the quality is is going to get a lot of people. You have a point of view that people if they if they want your point of view, they have to listen to you. And so it could be you get let's say 100,000 super loyal people listening to your podcast. And you say to yourself, well, why does this other person have a million people? Well, they're just talking about, I don't know, the election every day. And then those people are going to disappear. They're not, they're not saying anything unique. It's just they're getting, giving the latest news or whatever. And, you know, so I think sometimes even measuring the number is the wrong metric, but we're used to it in this social media world. Mm -hmm. How many followers, how many subscribers, how many downloads? And you have to get back to like, well, if only a thousand people liked me, but they really love it, I mean, I think I, that's more valuable. Yeah. Like I, I, I honestly, yeah, that my ego always wants something to be bigger and to be growing at a certain trajectory. But ultimately, what's meaningful about this work that that you do and that I do is the capacity to impact people, and to the extent that you can improve the quality of the work to to um, exacerbate that impact in a positive sense so that they're left with something substantial that really can move the needle in how they live their lives. That's that's the opportunity there. And so I try my best to like remain focused on that. Yeah, and, and, and so let me ask you this. Has anyone ever walked up to you and said, oh my God, Rich Roll, your Instagram changed my life. <laughs> Like, has anyone ever no. said that to you? <laughs> no. Right, but they'll come up to you. Yeah. I bet you they have come up to you and said, oh, Rich Roll, your podcast changed my life. Yeah, that happens a lot. Yeah, and I'm so- sure it happens to you. Yeah, and and again, no one's ever said to me, oh man, your Instagram, I love it. I check it out every day. <laughs> like, no one said <laughs> that. And I have just as much followers there maybe as any place else. And you start to realize, okay, well, why am I pursuing that? Is it just for the numbers or like- Really, where where I know where people are being impacted because they tell me, and so why am I trying to get TikTok followers or right. whatever? Like, I know you jo you joined TikTok, right? Yeah, I joined TikTok, and by the way, that's a very creative medium. I'm not knocking my, my daughters. Would, they they specifically prohibited me from joining TikTok. Did, now, do they, they use like, it? And they don't yeah, want they, you? On yeah, it? they use it. They use it. My younger one more than my older one, uh, but she was just more. I because I was joking with her the other day. I was I'm, I'm going to join TikTok. I got to check this out. You know, half joking. Like that's kind of where I draw the generational line. You know, it's like, but TikTok's really but creative. Actually, I, know. I love the yeah, yeah, yeah. videos. So I was like, I was kind of playing around with it, and 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 my youngest daughter was just appalled. She's like, please don't, please don't. Yeah, I mean, so. I was playing around with it, and then there, I, I put, I didn't have any followers, and I put up one video. I put up a couple of videos, and one video got something like two hundred thousand views. And so I thought that was interesting. That okay, they're they're treating the algorithm differently than. Other places. Well, do it's it's Twitter in 2007. Like the opportunity to grow rapidly is available on that platform because it's a new platform. Right. But then I looked at the video that did get me the 200,000 views, and I thought, man, that is the stupidest video I've ever done. <laughs> yeah. And so it's just yeah. meaningless. Yeah. Like, right, right. So, so I'd rather just do the podcast and not get. Were you like dancing or something? What were you doing? Well, that one people begged me to take down, <laughs> and I did. Yeah. <laughs> like that, I I decided, okay, this is beyond being afraid of what people will think of me, I'm making a fool of myself. Uh -huh. So, so I took that one down. Were you telling, but, you could tell, you could test out your material though. I, I could, I've seen people do that and kind of comedians. It's interesting because you, I saw kind of what I would say were regular club comedians in New York city go on TikTok and suddenly get millions of views and 250,000 followers. And that actually was an indicator to me that this person 
was funny and appealing to a certain audience. And that that was a data point for me when sort of seeing, because I own a comedy club too. So that was yeah. a data point for me in seeing, oh, should this person perform more here or, or not or whatever. Um, but for me, I just put up some articles that I, like an article I wrote in 2011, I took it and just basically set it in a TikTok kind of fashion and it got 200,000 views. Uh -huh. And another one that was against college got like 100,000 views or 80,000 views. So I thought, okay, it's a, interesting a little bit, but not enough, but it would took a lot of time even doing a 15 <laughs> second video. So I figured, okay, it's not, this is not worth really doubling down on. It's an experiment and it, right. and it wasn't Right, I appreciate the down. experimentation. And I also think it speaks to something that like Gary Vee talks about all the time, which is not being romantic about the platforms. Like whatever's working, move in that direction. Like you, you do lots of things, but fundamentally I think of you as a writer, right? And this is, you know, you really developed your audience through your blogging on your website. Um, but then kind of blogging, you know, really, it, it, it's not like a thing anymore, right? No, you that, pivoted to, to podcasting. And that's the problem with you know. writing is that- But like writing should never go out of style. And yet nobody's a blogger anymore. Yeah, no, there's no destination blogs. Like it used to be the yeah. case, there's you no destination to, websites. Trying to get people to go to your website is futile. You have yeah. to go where everyone already is. Yeah, and so yeah. I think, I mean, then for a while, like places like LinkedIn and Medium worked, but I don't really see that as much now. So I don't know, again, it's like pe when people come up to me and say, oh, I love X, it's usually the podcast. And then one out of 10 will be writing and it's never anything else. And what do you think, how do you think about um, iterating on that going forward? Like where, like forecasting where podcasting is going and perhaps, you know, being an early adopter of whatever the evolution of that is. I think it's, I, well, it's always hard to predict. Like if you look at what's happening now, I mean, so we were doing the interview format and a lot of people do that. And look, the best, the, the most popular podcast in the world, the Joe Rogan show is the interview format. Uh, so that's it's kind of staying, but- Two I, people I, talking, I would, I can't imagine it's ever gonna go out of style if it's a substantive, interesting, entertaining conversation. Yeah, and then and then what's what's interesting is that storytelling is hitting the top 10 or the top 50 or the top 100. So like true crime stories. So it's mm -hmm. like back to- 1920s dime novels about crime, that's what's shooting up the fastest right now in podcasting. And then I would say also podcasts, and I, I look at Joe Rogan as an example, podcasts with a bunch of comedians talking is interesting. And again, Joe Rogan's got the most popular podcast in the world and he's, he is a stand-up comedian. Often he has his comedian friends on, that's his, who he's interviewing. And so I wonder if that's because it's a safe place to, to have extreme opinions, but not be accused of being polarized in one way mm -hmm. or the other. So like Joe and other people like that will say whatever they want. Like, it's just insane what yeah, they'll say. And if they were like a big, you know, intellectual order or whatever, people would say, you can't say that, it's this. You can't say that about climate change, it's this about climate change. You can't say this about the Republicans or the Democrats, it's the other way. But Joe, you can't ever figure out what well, he's because talking about. He, he, his genius is that, you know, he's the first, he'll just say like, well, I'm a dummy comedian. Like, you're, 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 why are you believing anything I have to say? Right, like, that's always his refrain. John Stewart said so, the same thing throughout the entire, <laughs> yeah. even though everybody admitted they got all of their news from The Daily Show, uh -huh. John Stewart would always say, oh, I'm not a news guy, I'm just a comedian. But he, we all, he knew we all got our news from The Daily Show. Right, well, in the way that, that that um, the porn industry drove technological innovation on the internet, 
uh, comedians really are responsible for the birth of podcasting. Like they were the they were the early adopters. Oh, yeah. They were the Mark canaries Marin, in the coal Adam mine. Carolla. Like those are the guys. Yeah, and like the early days of podcasting, it was almost entirely comedians. And you're correct in that now what's capturing people's attention, beginning with serial, are these longer, highly produced stories. You know, our friend Neil Strauss did To Live and Die in LA, did tremendously well. And those are the ones that are kind of rising to the top. So does that leave you thinking like, maybe I'll do something in that space? Like the amount of work that goes into crafting that, like if, even if you took one interview and you like chopped it up and then you put voiceover of you contextualizing it, kind of like some of how the Gimlet shows do it. Like I've thought about that and I thought, that's just gonna take up too much time. Like yeah. I, this is already taking up too much of my time. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry about that, Rich. Yeah. Well, yeah, and you've gone to, you're going to four times a week with your show now. But but because two of those episodes and maybe even three is just going to be me bothered by something and talking about it, perhaps with a foil, perhaps uh-huh. someone's in there who, to tell me I'm wrong, but it's not gonna be the standard, okay, gosh, I've got to read 12 books you know, this week to, prepare for my interview subjects and- It's exhausting. Yeah, it's exhausting. So I kind of wanted to say, it's like what you were saying about somebody said, you know, why were people listening to you? They weren't listening to see what you were asking the other person. They really wanted to hear you. And so I figured, okay, let me just try this. I'm going to say what I think is important to me this week and why and how I'm being impacted and kind of storytelling about me a little bit or- a big need people have is like say say when Iran happened. So January third, you know, we attack this guy, we kill this guy, and and my kids were saying to me, "Is are we getting drafted? Is there is World War Three about to happen?" So there was this real fear among everybody, and and I see it even in my kids. And so I called up a big military expert, and I said, "Just I don't know anything," and. There's just a bunch of what I call spectators out there arguing all day long on Twitter and Facebook like they know something. Just let me ask you a bunch of questions, answer them, and now I'll know some more. And so that's what I did. And I think calming people down is a good role for podcasters with an audience. If you can get those guests mm-hmm. and not have a traditional guest, but like, this is really scaring me right now. Let's break down what's mm-hmm. happening. I think that's an easier format to prepare for because I know what I'm scared of. And I'm going to try doing that a little bit more as well. Yeah, I think that with that, then you have to um, embrace uh, the idea of doing this contemporaneous with current events. Like I'm trying to do interviews that that withstand the test of time and have an evergreen nature to them. And you know, I've banked a bunch of interviews, and sometimes there's a long waiting period between they go, and I and then I feel bad about it because. The yeah, person is no, like, wait, are you ever going to put that thing up that we did? Um, and trying to find a way to be more facile with it. So from time to time, like and I can make, I you know, I can do a more current event oriented kind of show. I've always, so I've done, I think I'm at 543 right now. It's all been evergreen, but I'm trying every now and then to to be a little current event just because sometimes people are scared and there's no one, the media isn't properly addressing their fears because mm-hmm. everybody's one side or the other side and they're not just looking at facts. And also the, the media has incentive to kind of exaggerate certain facts or change certain facts. And I'm not blaming the media, it's everybody. And so sometimes I just want to know, should I be afraid or not afraid? So for instance, you know, there's a lot of discussion lately about, well, is AI and technology gonna wipe out 30 million jobs uh, in the US, like like all these people are saying. And so I've been in the computer science industry a long time ago, but I called up 
current experts in AI and automation just to see where things were at. And I found out and got less afraid and was Uh able to communicate that. So that's not going to be evergreen, but it's good to answer this question for the next six months to a year that people have it. Right. And so sometimes now I'm just, again, playing to see, maybe I need to be a little bit more current just to saw, just to calm people down on really super important issues. Of all these ideas that you've put out in the world, wh- what idea stands out as the one that 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 people <laughs> went the most crazy about? Uh, Is it like you shouldn't go to college or? Yeah, okay, no, the, 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 the most, Controversial. Well, the college one has gotten me death threats. Uh-huh. So, I, so I really have, death threats. Death threats. So this is crazy. This guy wrote me like you know he said all these things. I'm gonna I'm gonna kill you. And his IP address or whatever was on the email. Somehow I was able to figure out his IP address. Uh-huh. Turned out to be Brown University. So he was writing from Brown University, and he put his name. So I called up. So so my whole thing was is that I don't think kids in today's day and age, not necessarily 30 years ago or 40 years ago, but in today's day and age, kids shouldn't go to college because it's reinforcing the system of higher and higher tuitions. An entire generation of 30 million kids are going more and more in debt, which is gonna increase income inequality and more and more bad things will happen. And and you could learn these skills now from all these online sites, And but there's a societal pressure. Anyway, that's my whole thing on college. Mm-hmm. And this guy wrote, write me, wrote me a death threat. And so I called Brown, University police, they put me in charge of the the chief of police. And uh, I should say, allegedly Brown. I don't know if uh, Brown will get upset at me. <laughs> so, and 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 I, I read the email and I said the name of the guy and, the, and this chief of police says, yeah, that's pretty bad. And oh, by the way, yeah, we, we know that guy. He did a similar thing with the school librarian. Mm. And I'm like, well, shouldn't you do something about this? And he's like, Come on, it's it's March. Uh, do you really want? He's, he's in his senior year. Just let him graduate. And and I'm like, well, he's going to graduate. Maybe and yeah, that's the situation where you know two years from now he does something really bad and nobody did anything, right? Yeah. And but there was nothing I can do really. Like, yeah. uh, uh, but the the thing that's gotten people the most antagonistic of all was home ownership. So I would write. There's a lot of financial reasons why you shouldn't own a home. There's a lot of reasons why it's a really bad idea. And and people got really upset about that. I did it on Yahoo Finance. It got over 10,000 comments. It got, you know, millions of views and shares. And and I've written it as an article. And I've done it as a podcast. Because that's the biggest dis- financial decision you make in your life, there's all this- It's also a source of tremendous pride for a lot of people. Yeah. So you're, you're basically challenging people's sense of themselves. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and if you also spend that kind of money, your brain's not gonna let you think right. the day afterwards- You're too oh, invested. Yeah, 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 you have investment bias. It's a mental model. And uh, uh, so your brain's not gonna let you think you made a stupid decision. So people will fight that to the bone. Like I've lost friends over that. I've lost friends over- the college thing. I lost the most friends over though uh, an article I wrote on um, there should you should no war is ever really justified and and I said I don't know anything I'm not a historian <laughs> but clearly like you go back that has right. four or five wars they're ridiculous and I'll even go as far as to say why did we do the Revolutionary War like <laughs> clearly Canada didn't suffer because they didn't have a revolutionary war. And somebody would start writing me, well, what about the Peloponnesian War? I'm like, I don't even know what that is. So clearly it doesn't matter to me. Yeah. And But then I did lose friends. Like somebody called me up, month, I realized I hadn't heard from a friend in a while. And I called him, I'm like, what's, 
what's what's wrong? And he's like, you're for you, you're obviously pro slavery. And I'm like, what are you, how what are you talking about? How can I be pro slavery? And he said, you you said no war can be justified, so that means the Civil War can't be justified. Well, slavery justifies it. And I said, you could have just called me and asked me if I think minorities should be slaves. Like clearly, I don't. And I said, well, look at the, you know, England got rid of slavery in 1831. Maybe if we hadn't done the Revolutionary War, there wouldn't be slavery because we would have been part of England. And I said, I don't know history. I just feel like when 20% of the country has died shooting each other and it's all 17-year-old kids, it's probably not the best idea. There maybe would have been another way to do it. But I said, I don't know. I just think Kids shooting kids is a bad idea. Well, two things. I mean, first of all, they these friends that you've lost couldn't have been, you know, great friends. If that, if that gonna, one was if like a twenty year really? friendship, oh, I was wow. really surprised. But he, but he was uh, of uh, Indian descent, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, took kind of personal. Offense. I understand. And and I'm Jewish. I said, look, I don't think World War II should have happened. Right. But, but this doesn't... is like to know you is to know that that you're very much a provocateur in this sense. Like when I see oh, like here's another crazy idea that James has been thinking about, you know, it's like you put it out there. And I think there's a, a you know, a, a perhaps slightly unconscious like glee you know, that uh, you get from like, let's see what happens with this. Yeah, a little bit. But you I don't know? try. I don't say things for instance. I don't. You know, I don't blindly uh, disbelieve. Like you know, you, you take you. There's enough research to basically connect the dots. Like my, the theory is, first, it's probably not a good idea to send 18 year olds to kill other 18 year olds because bad things will happen. And then you have to look at. There's all sorts of ways to to look at every war. But you, I also know history is written by not just the winners, but a very tiny percentage of the winners write history, and they kind of make the facts fit what happened. Now, all of these situations, obviously everything was horrible. Who knows what the right solution was? War turned out to be the solution to some big catastrophic problems. But it's just a thought experiment. What if there was never a war? What would what right. would it be like? Less people would die. So it's 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 leveraging a couple of the mental models that that Shane Parrish talks about. It's thought experiment, but it's also first order thinking. Like you're here's something we accept that's just kind of locked in our awareness as being true or just the way it should have been or, you know, should be or, or is, right? And you're saying, well, let's forget about that and look at it completely differently. Yeah. And then taking kind of a, a, a counterintuitive position on it. Yeah, just a, just a slight thing. You know, we dropped the atomic bomb twice because the theory was that, oh, and, and this is how history has been written, a million American lives would have been lost if we did a full-scale land invasion of Japan. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> no one's ever <laughs> told me how where how those numbers add up to a million. And and also there was a lot of people arguing back then that maybe we should just contain Japan until they give up. They were already kind of almost giving up, and so it's it's very or, unclear or, what would or, happen. Or why drop two bombs? Yeah, why drop two bombs? They were literally about to capitulate. You can argue, nah, they were going to hold out, but we didn't need to in, invade them at that point. A million lives wouldn't have been lost. So who knows? You always have to question. You know, why are people doing things in a certain way? What's the? There's got to be a backstory and a backstory to that, and a flip story and all this stuff we have no clue about. Right. All right. Well, we got to round this down, but let's talk a little bit before we end about um, your perspective on 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 the biggest ways in which people get in their own way. Yeah, that's a good question. Well, let me ask you, like, what do you, what, you know, 
What do you think is the biggest way you get in your own way? You've mentioned a couple. You feel how imposter uh, I syndrome. I mean, yeah, imposter syndrome. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm insecure. I'm, you know, sitting here looking at you, but I'm thinking, like, do I sound like a dummy? Like, <laughs> you know, like what? What's the next question? Can I keep the momentum of this guy? You know, like I get up in my own head, and I'm my own worst enemy. By the way, regard. it's really hard being you a know? podcaster, yeah. right? You have to kind of it, you always do. think of questions is, ahead. That's when I said, "Wow, you're doing four of these a week." Like, I've done. Saturday, Tuesday, Wednesday. This is the fourth one that I've done in five or six days. It's hard. And I'm like tired, yeah. you know, and I'm like, okay, but James is coming, gotta be on my game. <laughs> um, so I can't imagine doing four every week. So that's, that's a, why the that's four, a I mix stamina, up the four <laughs> stamina endurance contest in its own right. But in terms of how I get in my own way, like I, I think, um, yeah, I, I, uh, yeah I'm, I'm profoundly insecure. You know, like I have tools to keep those things at bay. And I'm very self-aware of a lot of these limitations, but they still infect my ability to, you know, kind of optimize my, what I'm trying to accomplish. I think, I think, but I think you nailed it though with being self-aware and not necessarily, you know, it's, it's everybody can say, oh, you need to be more self-aware, self-aware, self-aware. And it's hard to do. You have to really be honest with what are my weaknesses? What are my strengths? So I know I, I have like huge weaknesses and psych, psychological issues around, let's say money. I've gone broke so many times. I'm like literally afraid to look at my bank account. But you have this ability to to create money as well. Yeah, I've been- You've done I've been, it many times. So it must be common. Because I lose like, it If too. you lose it all, like you're like, yeah, but I figured this out so many times. It's, it's always a disaster <laughs> every time though. So I'm knocking a lot on wood right <laughs> yeah. now. Um, but- also, I think knowing, being aware of what you're interested in doing. So at one point, this is about a year ago, I was pitching a TV show and and a network picked it up. And I thought to myself, huh, this TV show idea is good, but do I really want to do it? This is going to take thousands of hours of time. I don't think I want to do it. And so knowing, know, knowing when you're um, heart wants to do something when your heart doesn't want to do something, I think is really important part of that self-awareness. Is that like a narrative show or a- No, it was like, like a, a kind of social experiment reality show. I'll tell you the uh -huh. idea since I'm not totally not doing it. But um, uh, I was gonna take six random people off the street and the premise of the show was if they followed my advice exactly, I would make them a millionaire within six months. Uh -huh. So- but, you know, some would bail, some would succeed, some would like beat me up or whatever, like, you know, typical reality show stuff. And, but I thought to myself, they won't, network's not really going to know if this is good until it's over, until right. I've done it. And what if it doesn't work or and it's just going to take an, a huge amount of time flying all around the country. They wanted people in every city and, and they wanted more than six. It's just, they picked the best six. So it'd be so much work. And I felt myself like, afraid of doing that much work. So ultimately it didn't happen, but I think also being aware of like what you're willing to do, what you're not willing to do. So the self-awareness piece in that is is the understanding like this isn't really what I want to do and then following that up with pulling the plug on it even though it could be this huge amazing opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, because look, if if there's a lot of ways to go for making money. Making a TV show or doing a podcast or going into stand-up comedy or, or not, or even being a writer, those are not ways 
to make a lot of money. Uh -huh, <laughs> you don't right. go into those thinking, man, I'm going to make billions now. Forget being a plumber. Now I'm going to be a podcaster <laughs> that's just going to start rolling in. It, that just doesn't happen. So, so I think a lot of it is about just being aware of what your capabilities are, what you really want to do versus what you're, what you don't want to do, understanding what skills you don't know. So somebody could say, I want to be an entrepreneur. Well, what's, what's entrepreneurship? There's no skill called entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is this bag of other skills like sales, ideas, execution, marketing, motivation, leadership. There's all these other skills and added together, it equals this, you could call it this one meta skill entrepreneurship, but that's not really a skill. So understanding what, if you want to do something, what micro skills you need to learn, you have to avoid you know, in whatever you're doing, you have to avoid smoking your own crack. Like you could think, well, I'm doing this, so it must be great. Mm. Uh, and I see that all the time among entrepreneurs or even podcasters. I'm doing this idea. It must be the best idea in the world. Why aren't people coming to it? I'm going to have to advertise now. It, you should try to always ask if if you're smoking crack on your ideas, because I think that's a real easy bias also. That's a mental right. model as well. Right, right, it, right. What do you think is your your greatest strength? Like what is the secret James Altucher sauce that, that has propelled you to this place? I'm not, I'm not sure because I'm not so sure I've done, I'm not sure so sure I've, I've been propelled anywhere, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think I'm, I think I have a lot of fun coming up with ideas. Yeah. So that's the thing I've written about the most is like, I write down 10 ideas a day and um, it just, I realized kind of shortly after I started doing this, that, that just writing 10 ideas a day, and it could be about anything. It could be about just, oh, 10 ideas for Valentine's Day gifts tomorrow, or 10 ideas that Google could do to be better. And they could all be bad ideas. But if you just kind of exercise this idea muscle, it really will get better. And if you don't exercise the idea muscle, it will atrophy. So the times when I was like losing all my money, I was letting my idea muscle atrophy instead of no matter what, no matter how bad things seemed, I started always exercising this idea. I was writing 10 ideas a day down. Like I wrote ideas the other day for, um, I wanted to make this card game. Again, it's an experiment. And I just wrote the rules. And so that was my 10 ideas of the day. Uh -huh. And and so- And, and of, how, of those ideas, how many of them do you take action on? One out of a thousand. So yeah. people will say like, how do you keep track of the ideas? And how do you know which ones are gonna be good? They, you never take action on them because it's really just like, if you exercise by lifting weights, it's not like you think the next day, well, I don't have to lift today because I lifted no, really good weights yesterday. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's just practice. practice. And, and you'll know the good ones because the next day you'll figure out 10 more ideas that are about that. It might be 10 execution ideas uh -huh. about one of the ideas from the day before or a week before or a month before. One of the ones I heard you talking about recently was trying to pay for stuff with North Korean currency. Oh yeah, and, and yeah. Iranian currency. Yeah, so I, I <laughs> on, a, on a fluke, I, I wandered into this random auction house that had currency and I just, this guy had like this bag of money, like just in the, it was like this old dusty store, you could picture it with all, all these garbage bags filled with stuff. And I started finding like North Korean currency, Saddam Hussein currency, Idi Amin currency. So there was all this like weird dictator money. <laughs> and so I would, I bought a bunch of it and I started, um, I figured it'd be a fun idea to videotape me trying to pay for things. Like, hey, I'm, I'm at, I'll go buy a cup of coffee. Hey, I'm out of money, but I have this, you know, Kim Jong-il. <laughs> 
<laughs> currency. It's valid in North Korea. Uh-huh. And nobody ever has taken right. the money. So They won't even touch it, right? Yeah, some, pe- some people, it's weird. Some just... Uh, I think maybe they're afraid it's infected with something or there's some poison. I have no idea. Like, why I, think, wouldn't you- I think, well, if it's a gnarly dictator money, it, 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 it almost feels like you're complicit in that regime if you touch it. Yeah, or, or maybe- and I think with a vendor, they think if they touch it, then that constitutes an agreement. Or maybe also because there's like sanctions. Like we have sanctions against North Korea. Maybe if you are holding on to a bill from North Korea that's against anyone, the law. Yeah, but I don't think anyone thinks about that. It is yeah. a weird, it is an interesting thing though. Yeah, because I always ask people, why did you not, here, touch it? And they're like, no, I, they re- specifically don't want to touch it. But they probably the don't have a, a good answer for why. Yeah, they, they don't, don't, nobody has given yeah. me an answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They just don't want to. <laughs> it like right. creeps them out. <laughs> What's the next crazy experiment? And then we'll finish this thing. Well, uh, uh, there's a lot really. Um, there's this skip the line book that's coming up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're doing just, that with a traditional publisher. Yeah. So almost an experiment to do yeah, go mainstream. It's like, what a crazy experiment. <laughs> James is actually going to go the traditional route. Well, I really wanted to see how things have changed in that world. And I think they have a little bit, but they, and everything I thought initially was that they rely on your marketing ability as well is true. So, but now they just, everybody sort of knows the story. Like that's the, the they know you have to do that and you know, you have to do it. And and yeah, a lot of things I'm experimenting with, like I've been playing around with doing this card game and now I know how to do a Kickstarter because of Greenland. So I'm going to do a Kickstarter for this card game once I print up the first version of it. And that's just a fun thing. You, the key with an experiment is it shouldn't take up too much time or money. Uh, another thing I've been doing is I've been putting um, what I call anti-ads on the backs of cabs in New York City. You ever go to New York City and you see on the back, there's there's a little TV show and there's ads and the ads will be for real products. So I've been creating these ads that don't advertise anything. So there's just like, it's just like a picture of me saying hi. And and <laughs> and they called me up, they called me up and they said, Are you have to put a URL or don't you want to put a URL or a Twitter handle uh-huh. or something? And I'm like, no, that's the whole point. No URL, no but Twitter that's like, handle. That's that's like performance art. Yeah. It's know? a little like that. And I kinda want to see what happens though. Like, I does like it that. and I've had at least one instance, because I did this for a couple of months, or I'm doing this for a couple of months, and one guy now did come up to me last week, and he's like, you're that you're that taxi TV guy. My nine-year-old loves you. And he took a selfie with me. He didn't know my name. He didn't, <laughs> he didn't know, know anything else. other than you said hi and a little sticker. Yeah, and, yeah. and, there's no, and the taxi <laughs> TV people said, we can't run this, because originally it didn't even have hi on it. And uh, they, they said, we can't run this. Just we a gotta, picture of your face? Yeah, it was just a picture of my face. And by the way, it was really like, it was just, I was wearing a white t-shirt and I was standing next to a white background. So it was the uh-huh. worst possible way to structure a photo. <laughs> and the taxi TV people said, we, we have to have a certain bar. We have, you know, professional advertisers advertising on this. We can't run this. So they made me put, and I, and they had a good idea, which, so they, I can't say they made me, but uh, I, they said, make it a little bit of a story. So I put high on the first one and like high again on the second one. And <laughs> I forget what we put on the third one, like a math puzzle or something. Uh-huh. But so that's an experiment. And I, I have like 20 So those are these. up in New York right now, cruising yeah. around? Yeah. Oh my God. And I, I have like 20 of these experiments going on. Right. These different types of things like this that all seem small. And you know, also working on another TV show, which would be much less work and experimenting with the format of the podcast. And it's just things I do all, all the time to... I figure, okay, if it doesn't take time or that much money, I can do it. And so I do it. 
I love it. And I love you. You're you're fantastic. I love I, the work that you do. And you know what? Let me just say this. You look great and you seem really happy. And that I, makes I me am. happy to see. Thank you, Rich. Yeah. I've been, um, uh, I wish I could say how I've been living your healthy lifestyle, <laughs> no. but- you're I know you've taken. I know you've taken stabs at it. Yeah, I've taken stabs. I remember one time you you visited me and you were talking, and my my daughter, I have my red haired daughter, was about to turn full vegan, and uh -huh. I think you actually listening to you actually put her over the edge. Like she was just like listen, sitting there like wrapped while you were talking, and now she's been like literally a vegan ever since. It's oh, almost four years later. I love it. So Fantastic. so at least she's living that lifestyle. But yeah. I try to be healthy. Well, we're working. This is this is this is perhaps a new experiment for you. Yeah. Could be, yeah. could be. All right, man. Well, to be continued. Yeah, right. definitely. Thank you, Rich, yeah. as always. And I look forward to our, our, our next get together on, yeah. on the air. Sooner rather than later. Yeah. Cool. Peace. Plants. Always, always a super good time with James. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Some good gems in there for sure. And I hope you find it useful as well as entertaining. Do me a favor, let James know what you thought of today's conversation. For more on him, Check the show notes on the episode page on my website. You can go to his website, jamesaltucher.com, and you can follow him at Altucher on Instagram and at jaltucher on Twitter. If you'd like to support the work we do here on the show, subscribe, rate, and comment on it on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube. Share the show or your favorite episodes with friends or on social media, and you can support us on Patreon at richroll.com forward slash donate. Thanks to everybody who helped put on today's show, Jason Camiolo for audio engineering, production, show notes, and interstitial music. Blake Curtis and Margot Lubin for videoing the podcast. Jessica Miranda for graphics. Allie Rogers for portraits. Georgia Whaley for copywriting. And DK for advertiser relationships. As always, the theme music is by my boys, Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Hari Mathis. Side note, I've got Tyler working on some new music for the pod, so stay tuned for that. And with that, all being said, thank you for the love, you guys. I will see you back here in a couple days with who knows what, when, where, and why. Like I said, I've gone through my stash of episodes recorded prior to the pandemic. So I uh, got to figure out what's next, but I can promise you this, it's going to be good. So until then, peace, plants, namaste, reinvention. Yeah.